Listening to Art Problems, a workshop podcast, episode four. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. Today, I talk with Philip Niemeyer, a good friend of mine based in Austin, Texas, and the founder of the gallery Northern Southern. But before I get to all of that, I really wanted to take a moment and just thank all of you for liking the podcast, reviewing it, and sharing it on Instagram. The response has really been quite astonishing, at least for me. I think it's been really incredible to be able to connect with all of you in this way. And I'm just so appreciative that you're sharing this podcast with your friends as a resource that they can benefit from, that you can benefit from, that everyone can benefit from. Because really, my goal is to help as many artists as I can. And so you're really helping me and helping all of us, helping this community get the resources they need by sharing this podcast. So thank you for making that happen. And of course, if this podcast fits that category of a resource or something that you think people should know about, do not hesitate to share it. Now, I also wanted to mention that on Monday, October 17th, I'll be offering my free masterclass, Three Steps to Getting More Shows. And this is where I discuss the most common mistakes that I see artists make when they are trying to get new shows and how to correct those mistakes. This masterclass is the framework behind Network, the membership that I founded that helps mid-career artists get the shows, residencies, and grants of their dreams. And you'll have an opportunity to join the membership when you sign up for this free class at the very end of that lecture. And I just want to say, obviously, I'm biased, but not really that much. Like, this is really an extraordinary membership that allows you to get the support and feedback on every aspect of your practice while connecting with other artists. And that is something that is increasingly difficult to do on platforms like Instagram, which is why we need places like this. So there's literally nothing else there out there like this. So if you want to take your practice to the next level, I definitely begin, I definitely recommend beginning with the free masterclass so that you get a sense of what you need to do to get to that next level. Now, back to Philip Niemeyer. Now, Philip is the founder of the Contemporary Art Gallery Northern Southern. And in addition to his work as a dealer, Philip is a graphic designer and artist. Now, Philip and I both lived in New York, which is where we met and connected over a love for art and design. And Northern Southern is making a huge name for itself in Austin and beyond. The gallery will show the work of Laura Litt at NADA Miami this year. This is a huge deal for them. So I just wanted to say Welcome to the show, Philip. Hi, Patty. So good to talk to you again. Likewise. Thanks for coming on the show. I wanted to talk to you today because I felt like we're both really smart people whose paths have not been conventional. It's taken time to figure out who we are and how to thrive on our own terms. And so I wanted for this conversation to really deal about with the theme of paths because it's something that I think artists deal with so frequently because there's life changes, artwork changes, and basically the choices that we make for ourselves and how we shape them and how they shape us. And so I thought we could start by talking about ourselves. And I wanted to talk about your path a little bit first. Is that a good thing to do? Yeah, go for it. I'm curious because I think, and we'll maybe come back to this, but I think sometimes we can't see our own paths when we're in the middle of them. I think that's really true. So like I met you through my roommate, Jason. And when I knew you, you were doing something called double triple and you were doing a lot of graphic design. And the reason that I remember when I first met you because you started talking about things that you could do for both for the blog and this record album that I was working on. And 
you just had ideas that I never thought of. And immediately I was like, I want to work with this person. And that was really, really exciting because there's nothing better than talking to somebody who gives you ideas that thrill you. I feel like we have this, I, I feel that way about you. Like when I first met you, I mean, I loved art and creativity, but I was very green as far as what the art world was and what it look, meant to look at art. And I learned so much from just going to gallery shows with you. I mean, it's really fun to, to go to shows together. So we've had like a long friendship, which I think started, I mean, we were talking about this pre-podcast. I don't think either of us are really sure exactly when we met, but we started working together in 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. And then you moved out of the city. And I remember that from my perspective, when you moved, that was something of a fraught move for you. Like you really liked the city, but. Oh, I did. Yeah. Well, I was a graphic designer and I was, I felt like that was around 2011. And I felt at the time that I was rolling, like I had just done the titles for like a, a movie about Tribe Called Quest that was going to Sundance. And um, one year out, I had done a New York Times op-ed and I felt really good about my prospects and I felt like extremely happy. I loved being in the city. I loved being around people like you. And the Times op-ed, I think that went viral, didn't it? Like it was so it, it popular. Did. It was really popular and, and that felt really good. And uh, I felt like I moved to New York in 2000 with the goal of becoming a New York designer. Like to me, that was the thing, like the best. And at 2011, right before we moved, I had this feeling right or wrong that, oh man, maybe I was there. Maybe I had arrived. But another thing happened is that I, we, my wife and I had a second kid and <laughs> it was just, it was practically impossible for us to stay in, in New York at that time. We, we had like, it wasn't necessarily like raising babies in New York isn't impossible, but we had friends that would say stuff like, what schools are you going to put them in? And they're like, they're babies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but all the other parents were like planning their schools since they like were six months old. And we felt like we were behind the ball. It was like, we were just going to send them to school. We didn't know we had to sign up for anything. So we moved to Texas where we had family. We're both Texans. And, you know, that makes having children easier. So in a lot of ways, it was a move to stabilize our family and to stabilize our life. But at the time, it felt like to me that I had finally gotten someplace I wanted to be and I had to leave it alone. I had to leave it. And that might have been conflated in my mind. When you have small children, and I think a lot of your listeners that do know that it kind of dries up your brain and you don't always think correctly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was 2011. I moved, we, 2011, 2012, we moved from New York short stay in San Antonio where I'm from and then to Austin. And I, in order for us to get a house, I took a job, which I hadn't had in 10 years. I was a creative director for a company. And I, I swear I lasted only three months. I remember that because like, <laughs> that was, I mean, I think we both had times in our lives where we've been like, Oh, I'm just going to take a job job. And yes. it's just for both of us. It's never worked out. Never. I can't have, I mean, I learned not to take a, my dad had the same job his whole life and uh, was laid off when he was in his late forties and never found anything else. So when I was young, I was like, I think a lot of Gen X kids are like this. You just distrust the, that social contract that you'll be taken care of. You kind of feel like, oh, you're disposable. You can only take care of yourself. I don't know if that's a latchkey kid thing or something. Well, I know but, that my father, he did his share of job jobs, but he did not last very long in them. So he ultimately decided to start his own firm as he is an accountant. And the amount of stress, especially in those early years, was so significant that for me, I swore that I would never do it. I would just get a job job and that would be it. And it just it didn't work for me. I right out of art school, I was like, I'm going to get a job as a gallerist. And I did. I was really good at getting jobs. The only problem was that I was terrible at those jobs. I got fired from them all, like five years of like, <laughs> doing these jobs. And I always got fired. 
And part of it was just like, I cannot force myself to, this sounds terrible, but I couldn't force myself to care about somebody else's stuff. Like I care about what, what I care about. <laughs> and like, I just couldn't, I couldn't shape my personality any other way. So it actually, I tried multiple times because there was a period, an in-between period for me too, where I tried to get a job job and it didn't work. We can talk about that a little bit later. But. <laughs> Maybe that's another podcast when you can't have a job job. Well, it is. It I think it actually probably should be part of this <laughs> podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're both people that can't have job jobs and it requires us to take I mean, I think that the twisty career path is part of not having a job job. Yeah. But but I, I think that we both have this. I mean, I know that I often would have this insecurity that I didn't take a conventional path. And so I was somehow less than or lucky to be there. What would be a conventional path for you? Well, I don't know. I was thinking about like, what is a conventional path? Like right now I'm running an art gallery, which when I met you was not even conceivable to me. So I have no idea how I... I do have an idea how I ended up here, but it just seemed like one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And now I have an art gallery. Yeah. I, I, I would think for an art gallerist, what I would consider like a conventional path would be perhaps an MFA or at least a BFA with a minor in business or vice versa. Perhaps, and just to be very canny about it, a family that comes from some sort of affluence or connection to collection and with those connections. Yeah. Probably starting out as a curatorial assistant or an associate curator at some museum or institutions for a number of years, or starting out at a gallery and working yourself up to being a director of a gallery, or after leaving an institutional job, perhaps starting a gallery, relying on perhaps your family's connections and a certain amount of family wealth or security that in this game of art galleries, like that you see that. Yeah. So I think like a David Zorner type path, I think he, he had some, I think he had some early career where he was doing something different, but he got on the gallery path really quite, quite quickly. And his father was a dealer too. So like it runs in the family. And then I think his kids are also in the, in the gallery business. So that seems sort of conventional. I mean, I was thinking as you were going through those sort of lines of like people I knew who are artists and then become dealers, which are my favorite kind of dealers. <laughs> my favorite oh, yeah? dealers are always like people like you, you know, you're kind of, you're creative and that's what brings you to the business side of things is that you have an artist mind too. You can really kind of connect to what the art is. And sometimes you also have like a family background and sometimes it, sometimes you don't. And then I was thinking, I can't remember this guy's name, Josh something or other. I think maybe I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could remember this for the podcast, but he used to run this gallery in, in New York called Untitled. and then. He got a job as a philanthropist, or not a philanthropist, like I think he was uh, in charge of giving at one of these major museums. And then he became an artist. And so now he's doing that. Now that I think he's a slightly weird person to um, cite as an example because I think he. He's an example of somebody who's extremely privileged, had a lot of money, and there was a New York Magazine story about him and his various addictions and how he landed <laughs> on top anyway. And he is also, I think, like when you get to the top levels like that, there's a lot of sort of rich people just trading objects for fun. <laughs> so Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the art world in some ways can be comparable to baseball card trading. Although I would Maybe think that's that a he, hot take. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that baseball card trading is more regulated than the art industry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, well, I think of a conventional path and I'm going to like, I think of Amy Smith Stewart at the Aldridge Museum because I knew her when I was, when I first moved to New York. Oh, okay. And she, so she, when I first moved to New York, I met her through my cousin and she was a curator, an associate curator at PS1. And then she left the institutional role to go into private galleries. She worked for somebody else for a short time. Then she opened her own gallery, Amy Smith Stewart. And she did that for a while. I think I'm fuzzy on the details, but I think that around 2008 or so, when everything went to hell in the handbasket in New York, she pivoted. And I don't know how she ended up back in the institutional world, but now she's at, she's the director of the Altridge, which is a very esteemed institution. So I think if like someone like that is being like MFA or BFA, working at an exciting place like PS1, going into like having some sort of mentorship relationship with somebody that's already a gallerist that shows you what to do, trying it on your own, maybe pivoting back to the curatorial side or the institutional side, and then moving up that ladder. I think that would be a conventional path where you, where I think of it, like when I look out from the outside, I think that's a conventional path. Like, are you educated at like a, uh, do you have an art degree? (laughs) Well, sure. Have you worked? I think we have like a, so we have gallery, conventional paths for gallerists. And then we have conventional paths for artists, mm-hmm. you know, like I think. What would be the conventional path for an artist? Or what do we think of as a conventional path as an artist? I think a conventional path that leads to success, right? Because this is part of what we're talking about, even though we haven't defined what success is. But <laughs> another thing we need to do. But like if in this example, we define success as like basically art market commercial success, like you might look at somebody like, say, Lisa Yuskovich, who came out of the Yale program in the 1990s, skyrocketed, got a good gallery, got a better gallery, got the best gallery, right? She's at David Zwerner right now, and she's had a lot of attention. Another example might be Dana Schutz, graduated, I think, 2001, 2002 out of Columbia Art University, had a show with Zach Foyer right while she was she was in a show while she was still in grad school. I know Jerry Saltz, like there was a lot of buzz around her because like a lot of my friends were going to school at Columbia at the time. So I can talk about her actually really well. There was a lot of buzz around her at the time because she's a really, really good painter. Like it wasn't an accident that she Mm -hmm. was picked up. Like she's just so good at doing what she does. And there was kind of, there were a lot of rumors about insiders telling each other to buy her work early because she would be famous. And of course she was famous and she was with Zach for a while. And now she's, she's at Petzl, but she's done, she's taken that path and it's just sort of been on an upward trajectory. And there's, you know, I think Every artist will have good years and bad years, but just generally, you know, she is what you would consider an established artist at this point. And she's, you know, she's been in the biennial. She's had at least one major controversy around her work. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of the spice that makes it taste better a little bit, maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that is a whole other podcast, but 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 she but Dana Schutz went from MFA at a one of the Ivy pro like Columbia Yale one of those programs. Yeah, I mean even to, like somebody like Jules de Ballancourt, who was picked up also like pretty much out of Hunter University, which was not an MFA but like, or like superstar MFA program, but like based in New York and. Basically, his career had like now he's at Pace, but he was at Salon ninety four, and then before that, I don't know where he was. I can't remember. But and then like somebody like Carrie James Marshall, right? Like I've mm. been kind of like I went to the Met recently, like last week, and I was like looking at a piece in one of their contemporary art shows by him, and there was a docent in front of this particular piece. And I like had also just like the day before been looking at a talk that he'd given about how he had done his MFA. And when he was like looking at art history, he was like, I have to carve a space for myself that 
is like what I do has to be like representative of me and like really be also as good as these masters in the particular way that that I choose to express my figures or whatever. Now, however he said it was like a thousand times more articulate. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. think he's just like the most incredible speaker ever. But he has like one of the things that I actually found quite striking about his talk and perspective is that in some ways it's quite conventional because he is looking at old masters. He's looking at a very particular place in the market that he wants to participate in. And the market and art history are not separate. They're really intertwined. And so I think, I just think they're, he's a really interesting person to kind of think about because his career path, his objectives, and his perspective are so specific to him. But, but, also there, but there is something about it that really fits neatly within our histories. Well, I don't know his biography, but if you're saying like he goes from MFA, like what I think we think of as a conventional path for an artist would be like some sort of degree and then a small gallery right away, then a bigger gallery and then a bigger gallery and the museum shows and perhaps Whitney biannual inclusion and success, success. Yeah. And I think also inclusion, I think it has to also include like acquisition, right? Like one of the big moments in Dana Schutt's career was the MoMA buying people eaters for a million dollars. Wow. And I I think that happened in like maybe 2007 or something like that. It was a watershed market like moment for her. I mean, I think one, I think if we think about unconventional like histories or lineages, we might like that somehow fit in to a convention. Like you might think about somebody like, I hate to say this, but like Beeple. Right. Because <laughs> like, like the reason I went from Dana Schutz to Beeple was like, well, she made headlines for that sale and Beeple made headlines for his sale. Now we can have conversations about the quality of the work, what's happening, right. what, you know, whether there was a bubble around yeah. NFTs at the time, like it was already actually breaking at that point, but whatever. There's a lot of different factors in here that kind of complicate these narratives. But I do think that one of the things that this tells us is that we can't afford to ignore sales. I mean, okay, this is what occurs to me, like when we're talking about this, is that I'm not a huge fan of NFTs or digital art per se, but I know who Beeple is. And I know the ambition of that piece that that it was really big. And despite it's not that when I look at a Kerry James Marshall, I don't care about his CV or where he went to school, but I could see the mermaid. I see his mermaid in my head. That, that mermaid painting is stuck in my head. I could see it anytime I want. It's so powerful. And same with Dana Schutz. Like their career path isn't what I care about when I care about their art. It's almost like, and I, and I wonder, and I wonder how real, like, I think a lot of us in this world of art, like we, we compare ourselves to people that have what we consider straight jobs or more conventional jobs, like working at a corporation or in some kind of academic sense where you have a roadmap that gets you from point A to point B. I want to be a regional vice president. Then you got to get in the job and you got to be a middle manager and you got to do well and you get it promoted, 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 maybe you back and forth and you update your LinkedIn and eventually you're regional vice president. Or if, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like in, in that respect, in, the, in that world, that resume or that CV or that LinkedIn or whatever it is, that is the lingua franca. That is what you've done, like in a kind of corporate setting or in like a a conventional business setting. Like people are looking at that as your accomplishment. But in the case of Dana Schutz and Carrie James Marshall, and I'm going to leave people out of it because I don't know enough about NFT art. I mean, at this point, it doesn't even matter where they went to school. I don't care. Like all I care about is that art, that painting, like what they did. Like that's their real CV to me. Carrie James Marshall, I don't, if he was doing this work in like a garage in Sacramento, it still would be amazing work. Maybe people wouldn't find it as quickly. I think a lot of us in the art world, we try to find the comforts of like those conventional paths. And sometimes we beat ourselves up for not following these conventional paths. Like, oh, we're not going to make it because we didn't do so-and-so and this and this. Yeah. Like, I know I used to feel very insecure 
about not having an MFA or any sort of formal art education or design education. Very insecure about it. And I don't anymore, but I used to. Yeah, I feel like that's really common amongst people who don't have formal education. You know, they feel like they need their MFA. But I think I remember talking to you, I think it was just like last week, and you were like, any gallery that really cares about like where an artist went to school is like kind of dumb. And it made me, it reminded me of this gallery that I didn't really have a lot of respect for that's now out of business. But like that was a big thing for them. Like all of the people they represented were from Ivy League schools. And I was just like that, like in terms of like an artist selection criteria, it just seems so lazy. Or, or insecure, not able to tell what's good or have confidence in your own taste. Well, some like, people I, can't though, right? Like there's all sorts of people who don't know the difference between what's good and what's bad. And sometimes as an individual, you know that you don't have that skill. And sometimes as an individual, you don't know that you don't have that skill. And I think that's something that also just... I mean, it's a slight divergence from the topic here, but I think that is something that is a cause for anxiety amongst a lot of artists. It's like, and all of us really, it's like, well, what if I've, what if I've misevaluated my skill level? What if this thing that I'm doing actually is frivolous? And I thought, oh God, yeah. I yeah, thought so I was hard. doing something important. It's hard to keep that. It's hard to keep that. Like that, that is so hard. Because you can't see yourself and you can't see what you're doing. Some days you, an artist might feel like, oh my God, I'm rediscovering art. And other days they could feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm a bum. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, to go back to the CV, because I, I feel like it is something that like, people work on and it is a credentializer. It does, does provide like a shorthand to some people about the collectability or the value of the artwork. In that, oh, well, this person has this sort of pedigree. Yeah. Like they yeah. went to this school yeah, and they sure. did this thing and they, and other people like them and they had this solo show and that solo show. So I don't have to be scared that I'm wrong, that I know that other people think that these people are good. So they must be good. That's basically what a CV does. But it, well, and it's really important. I look at CVs all the time. Like you look at the word first, you look at the CV second. And the CV, if I'm being honest, is one of those ways that you're like, oh, I think I like this, but am I right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the TV, you're like, yeah. I, I, I'll be real. I don't have the attention span to look at a CV. I barely care. Like, I know I must be an outlier here. Like, I look at art and I will show artists that have terrific multi page CVs and artists that don't know what a CV is. But I think it's useful to have. I definitely think that it's something that. If you, you want to have some sort of CV, but ultimately it's the work. Ultimately oh it's the God. work. In my, in my opinion, it's ultimately the work and your commitment to it. Like you don't sell the CV. You don't hang the CV. I the mean, work. I like hearing that from you because I also think about, I don't know, like artists like Julian Opie, like, is it really possible that he is excited to keep making more cartoonish figures and light boxes? And who is the person who is so excited to sell that work? Right? I feel like that's, a, that's also a problem with that that happens to artists where they just become oh. like little mini factories. I mean, that's the like there's the, that's the other side of it, right? Like that's the danger of success or like the danger of finding some success with with a with a trick or with a gimmick and then you're trapped cuz doing it cuz your gallery is selling it and maybe you have assistants on payroll and you have to turn them out and you maybe want to do something completely different like maybe he wants to do pastoral watercolors but he can't because the gallery would be really upset if he delivered something completely different than the cartoony boxes that were already moving and <laughs> how is he going to it's not necessarily all selfish fear it could be that, you know, he has a family. I'm just speculating. He could have a family. He could have people on his payroll that he cares about. That he wants to make sure that they get paid. It becomes a business and a business and an art practice. And, and I think that conservatism, once you get something that works, it's really hard to change it. I think that that's a danger of a, a, a successful mid-career artist that feels stuck. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's super common. I've had friends in that position and like sometimes 
like a stock market crash in 2008, like saved a friend of mine from like that fate of being a factory. Cause he was, it was really unhappy making mm-hmm. work about a breakup for like five, six years after the breakup had happened. Cause that's what collectors are really interested in. I've just seen it happen to so many artists. So it's good to have a way out of that. And like, there's that expression when a door closes, a window opens. And sometimes like a studio fire can set you free. I say a studio fire and I say it specifically, like I know a lot more about graphic design history, perhaps in art history, but one of the great type designers of American history is this man named Frederick Gowdy. And he suffered three separate studio fires. And after every one, his work took a jump because it was like really? he, had a clean, he had a clean slate. Yeah. And he started over. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I think this goes to like, I mean, sometimes I think you need like a kickstart. I mean, one of the reasons that I moved to New York was that I felt that I would not make my life around the arts if I was not, if I didn't force myself to take the risks that I felt I needed to take. And so sometimes a fire will do that. Sometimes it's just putting yourself in those situations. I think one thing that I feel like we should talk about is just like how scary it is to make those changes. Cause you have to like that window you're talking about, you have to actually see the window. Yeah. You don't see it. It's terrifying. Like, I think the CV is interesting. Like the CV is called a curriculum vita, like the story of your life. And I think that we see our lives or we can't others see us this way. And sometimes we see ourselves this way that we are what we did. We are what we're doing. And this is who we are. So if I'm like a painter of cartoon light boxes, that's my identity. And if I decide I'm not that guy anymore who is successful, I'm this other guy now. Like, what does it mean to become someone else? What does it mean to my past? Like, who would any sort of change is a little bit like a death. It has that same kind of fear. So I can't remember the name of this book, but maybe you remember because you recommended it to me. It was a marketing book written in the 1970s that I. Oh, I love marketing books written in the 1970s. <laughs> We <laughs> recommended it to me a, a while ago and I got the audiobook and I listened to it. And this particular person was talking about how if you say things in public, you are less likely to change your mind about oh, influence. Them. Influence, yes. Yeah. Yes. It was and I thought I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of our identity and making change and like kind of the state of the world that we're in. And for me, I actually had on my blog, like RF City is Patty Johnson. So when I quit doing the blog that I had been doing for 10 years, I felt like it felt like I was killing part of myself. <laughs> it was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. And you know, I felt like super lost and like not lost like, oh, for a couple months, like I felt lost for a couple of years. And like, I was embarrassed to talk to people about what I was doing because I felt directionless. And like, it's because I was directionless. Like I didn't have like some specific thing. I was like adjuncting at schools. And I was like, this is a fucking dead end. Adjuncting is like where people go to die. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) And like, I just, because you can't make enough money at it. Like, and I was working all of the time. Like, I was working so much, half the time I couldn't go out. I get so anxious to just go see art because I felt like I should be doing something else at any given time. And like, when I started doing workshop, a lot of those things changed because like I was able to find my direction again because when I started the blog art of city a lot of it was about finding like I wanted to be able to help artists get the exposure they deserved and I did that through the blog and then now I can do this through workshop you know I can help them get the visibility they deserve like all of this talent that exists out there that just isn't getting seen. It's not being promoted. And I feel like one of the reasons that we're friends is that you have an investment in that creative life and energy too. Like 
that is what you are doing in Austin. You're giving people a platform. And like one of the exciting things about the gallery, and I feel like I'm blowing up your spot here, but I'm just going to go and say it. Go for it, yeah. Like you're going to Nada. You're in Miami and you're going to be taking an Austin artist there to give them that platform, right? Oh, no, that's really, that's really exciting. But I'd love to talk about that, but I have to go back because I want to talk about you. Because when you say like, I knew you when you started Art F City. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and when you talk about it, like the reasons that you started Art F City and worked at it for so long and did all those cool projects are the same reasons that you're doing network now. And it's not, it's almost like there's this lodestar, this guiding star that you want to right wrongs and you want to make this world a better, kinder place for beautiful art and people to make it and get exposure for things you love and do the right thing. The methods are different and the organization's different and the brand is different, but the motivating spirit No, the is motivating the factor is the same, but like, I think the thing that happened to me sort of in the in-between stages is I kind of, I just lost sight of that, you know, mm. like that, that, I mean, I was helping people. I don't, I probably shouldn't say, like, you know, I was helping people. I was helping students. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, I think I just was not, I wasn't helping people at the stage of, of their career that where I felt like I should be helping them at. Like, I think I can mm. do more for someone who is a mid-career artist than I can for somebody who's a student because a mid-career artist is better able to utilize the 20 years of experience I have in the field in New York. A student will have access to that, but they're only going to get a sliver of it and it's not going to, they're not going to be able to utilize as much of it because they're not ready for it. I, I could see that. Like in a lot of students, and what makes a student, uh, there's a lot of art students that graduate and 10 years later, maybe 80% of them are not doing art anymore. Whereas a mid-career artist, for the most part, is never going to quit making art. If you made it to mid-career, you're a lifer. Like, that's what you're going to do in some way, for the most part. I think that's absolutely true. You've like, you've decided, and it's, I don't even know if it's a decision necessarily, right? Because like, this is the thing with both of us too. Like, I think I went through a phase. This was what we were talking about. I said we would get to later. Like I went through a phase in that fa- the in-between phase where I was adjuncting. I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job job. I'm going to try this again. And it didn't work. I mean, first of all, I couldn't get another job. <laughs> like, You're I right. <laughs> you get to a certain point where you can't, can't get jobs anymore. Like there's no one's yeah, going to give you a job. I, Yeah, because I've been independent for too long. And somebody, and yeah. like, I- You're a wild horse. They're not going to be able to saddle you. It doesn't happen. <laughs> And I had an like uh, just an informational interview with somebody who was an executive director of a nonprofit. She was like, you know, maybe you should consider like taking a job for $20 an hour. And I was just like, I want to thank you very much for giving me this advice, but there is no way. (laughs) (laughs) And I wished at that moment that I could have censored myself because like after, like I thought I was just telling somebody (laughs) something like at the time but like that made everything afterwards so awkward (laughs) (laughs) it's like i'm unhirable and you can't afford me anyways (laughs) (laughs) but i mean this is the thing right like i just i and i did i interviewed for some like fairly high level positions but like in PR firms and things like that. But like, I'm not a natural, I care about artists. <laughs> like, I don't care about like galleries. Uh huh. Like, I just want to be working directly with artists. So like, I can't just represent a gallery and say like, hey, you should cover XYZ person to like the five journalists that still exist. <laughs> <laughs> Is this, uh, Uh I mean, I think that's also like so hard for, for artists and gallerists. Like there's a lot of need to be seen and gain visibility for what you do. And there's just like so little mechanisms right now that make that easy. 
Oh my God, the implosion of the journalistic community has been really hard on the art world, I think. Yeah, like, and I the, think- The critical discourse is really, like we can't, it's really hard to say like, are we ever gonna have like a Clement Greenberg ever again? Or even a Roberta Smith? Like they need that kind of security of a position to have that pulpit. I mean, I think the answer is no. Like, no. There's, there will not be another Roberta Smith. Mm-hmm. Somehow that- <laughs> <laughs> that seems something that prompts quiet reflection. It does. It's kind of sad. Yeah, you know? no, like, it really is. But I, I think that like, I think there's something to having that lodestar, that, that thing that you know, if I'm following this direction, I'm okay. It doesn't really, it's okay to change. It's okay to pivot. It doesn't change your identity because who you are, Patty, isn't Art F City. Who you are is, is somebody that cares about art and artists. Well, right. And I, I guess one of the things I like sort of wrote down in the notes for this show when I was sort of thinking about myself and RF City and making changes and looking back and asking myself, how could I help myself better at that time? And I'm asking this question, not so much for myself, but for everyone else out there that's like in that moment dealing with change and trying to figure out like how to navigate that. And (laughs) the problem is that I don't have an answer for it because when I think about like, how could I be more kind to myself? I think that might even be the wrong question, right? Because Mm. like you can be kind to yourself and still be afraid. Yeah. Right. Right. And part of this environment that we're in is that part of of being in this digital environment means always having some part of yourself visible. It's a little bit like conflating our brand with our identity, which is again, another podcast, like perhaps. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I think it's, it probably is another podcast, but I do think that it's all related to how we deal with change. Like how these unconventional paths that I think ultimately most of us take in some way, how we deal with them in a way that we can manage. I would put to the art, the people listening, that there there might not be a conventional path, especially in the art world. Like we talked about Carrie James Marshall or Amy Smith Stewart or people that we think, oh, that they did it the way you're supposed to do it. But for every one of those people, there's, there's someone like who, there's every one Didn't of us, right? Sh- like they're all oh, of yeah. us. Or someone, or so, or, or like to, to use a real example, like someone who doesn't have their first show until they're in their forties, maybe shows four or five times in their forties, drops off the face of the earth, doesn't have another show till they're eighty, and then becomes a major art star and paints until they're one hundred and seven, like Carmen <laughs> yeah. Herrera, yeah, like Carmen totally. Herrera, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Or like when you think about gallerists, like let's talk about the the daddy of them all, like kind of just floated from job to job, had like a law degree, worked in an insurance company, married well, kind of followed his wife's money, got a job in a clothing store, immigrated, served in the army. We're talking about Leo gallery. Castelli, by the way. Oh, Leo Castelli. Yeah. Opened his first gallery, age 50. Age 50. Now we live in a world where people think that by the time you're 50, if you're not set, you're done. But he didn't start till he was 50. At age 50, he started what became I will Gagossian. say that- <laughs> I mean, I will say that one difference, though, is the amount of sort of financial instability that the average person will have if they don't have a lot of savings when they are that age. So like it would be less risky for somebody like him to make those decisions at age 50 than it is for all of us. But I think a lot of people in this world are dealing like in the art world, artists, People like you and me, a lot of us are dealing with financial instability and like yes. less less savings than we need. I talked to a financial planner recently. I'm like, I guess I'm not retiring. <laughs> like, right. know, like, I mean, we'll figure it out. But like, there's a lot of yeah. that kind of stuff when you make decisions around things that I guess the other thing, and I, I feel like I'm jumping around here a little bit, but like, a lot of the decisions that I've made, I feel like they haven't been made because I knew they were right. I've 
made them because I felt like I was kind of backed into a corner. I started the blog because I couldn't get another job and I didn't have things to do. And I knew somehow that I could do this. I didn't know I could make money off it, but I knew I could. I felt like I could make a difference. And when I started Workshop, it didn't start for, like, I'd like to, to tell everyone here that it started for all of the most amazing reasons, <laughs> like the love and generosity in my heart was if I did there not. There's love and generosity in your heart. <laughs> like, that's real. Oh, no, for sure. But like the first class I sold, I sold because if I did not do it, I could not make my rent. But I was really glad I did it because the minute I did it, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Like, I actually know a lot. You forget. When you're lost, you can forget. You can lose sight of your lone star or your lodestar. Sorry. Yeah, you really can. I think uh, I'm a gallerist now. I think I'm legitimately a gallerist now. Yeah. But I didn't always, that was never, I never thought I was going to be on that path. I still think, am I an art dealer? Is this who I'm an art dealer? Really? I still don't, it doesn't accord with how I see myself, but I got here because I was following a lodestar in a way. And what is your lodestar? Well, I think my lodestar would be when I turned 30, I was working as an attorney and it came to a realization that I would never be a great attorney because I just didn't love it. And I had to do what I loved. And there were people in my life that I followed that I saw as an example. And like, this is how you succeed. And I want to put succeed in scare quotes because that is such a loaded word, success. But I decided that I had to be creative and participate in a creative community in the, the most basic way. Like that's what I had to do with my life. And I loved graphic design and that's where I went. I went into graphic design. But since that time, which was like 2004, I've pivoted so many times. I've pivoted from graphic design to animation and direction to opening a gallery, which was originally a way to hopefully get more graphic design work, but then became something in and of itself. And along the way, I think my lodestar, the way I think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it has changed like slightly. When I first started, I, I thought a lot about myself. Like I thought a lot about, I wanted to be creative. I wanted it to be my thing. I've got something I've got to say. It's me, me, me. But over the course of the last like 10 years, especially in the early days of the gallery, I did the opposite. I thought, it's not about me. It's about creativity in general. And it's just as cool or perhaps cooler to get five, six, 10 artists out there in the world than it is just to do your own thing. That's 10 times the creativity. That's 10 times the artistic production. That's 10 times the love that comes from that. Um, oh, I love that. So that is really like that, that change in my lodestar is the reason I went into the gallery. Like the idea of like, instead of thinking about my own work as being something privilege that I should work on. And I do do my own work. I have to. It's like a psychological necessity. But the idea of a community or like, how can I help an artistic community or a creative community? How can I be part of it? How can I sponsor it? How can I nurture it? How can I support it? And, and that, that low star has given me a lot of strength. It's helped me a lot avoid the traps, I think, of the ego that can happen when you're in a creative world. Like, the kind of push-pull you have with yourself, like, I'm the best in the world, or I'm total garbage. Like, that, you could have those thoughts at the same time. Yeah. But when you stop thinking about yourself, you don't have any of those thoughts. I was actually thinking that, too, that, like, that it's so freeing to think about other people. That mm-hmm. that's when my problems start, like, when the way that I related to people stopped being through the lens of, my own problems and more through the lens or what I saw the problems to be and more through the lens of how other people were doing, and like what I could do to support other people, other communities and like build those communities. That felt like so freeing. It's, it's yeah. really, really fun work. And you're right. It's really fun work. You have the same access to the creative spirit and the feelings of doing it, but you don't, it's not all tied into who you are. Yeah. It's, it is, it's absolutely freeing. It gives you a sense of power, an agency, better word for agency, a mission. Yeah. And I think like, I think for artists, that's, this is complicated a little bit because like a lot of what you do as an artist is like rooted in finding your own voice 
like having individualistic expression. But I do think that it's not devoid of thinking about like the judgment process is not devoid of thinking about how other people see it, like how it will be received. And so it's, I think it's more complicated on that end, but it's not devoid of the concepts we're talking about. I don't think it is. I also think it's kind of a trick in the mind. Like I think thinking of this maybe is a topic for another podcast because we're getting a little bit off of what talking about, but I think the 20th century, that sort of modernist individualization, like the artist is an individual genius or have as their personal voice is a little different than the way we used to think about art like 2000 years ago, where it's more of like a community thing, community, like not that it's neither here nor there, because I think that having a little bit of an individual voice is, is definitely good. And we don't want people just to make things for the market without exploring it. But I, I do, and I'm a little bit, I feel like a little out of wandering into the deeps here, but it's very difficult to hold on to your ego. And the ego doesn't like change. No, the ego hates change. The ego hates change. But creativity loves change and creativity is change. And so you have to let go of your ego a little bit in order to save it. Got to stop thinking, like it's very useful to me to stop thinking about I am this way and thinking like, not thinking about it at all. I'm just going to do this thing. This feels good. I'm serving something. Well, I think that's like a beautiful note to end on, Philip. Okay, then. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you so much for being the first guest on the Art Problems podcast. And you are welcome to come back anytime because this is exactly the kind of conversation I want to be having on Art Problems. I love talking to you and I can't wait to come back. And I wonder what we'll talk about next. Well, we'll figure it out. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.